Hi again, everybody. I'm Dan Horde, and thanks for downloading the Bengals Booth Podcast. The time has come today. Edition as the Bengals practice in full pads for the first time in training camp. Coming up, Dave Lapham joins me to share his training camp observations, and then I'll be joined by Robert Weintraub, who writes about the NFL for Football Outsiders and writes about the Bengals for Cincinnati Magazine. We'll discuss the Bengals chapter in this year's Football Outsiders Almanac and much more. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. And here's a quick reminder that you can have the latest edition of this podcast delivered right to your phone, tablet, or computer by subscribing on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or Podbean. It's the greatest thing since Dan Patrick's interviews. Due to training camp, I'm usually not able to tune in to Dan Patrick's radio show, but lately I've been listening to the Best of Dan Patrick podcast on my ride home. The producers take the best segments from his three-hour show and condense it to less than an hour on the podcast. And that's where his interviewing ability really shines. Dan does his homework and clearly comes in with a list of questions, but he's naturally curious, so he doesn't feel the need to stick to his list. He listens to his guests, asks great follow-up questions, and his sense of humor puts those guests at ease. A few things for me to keep in mind each week on this podcast. Now, let's get to football. The Bengals held their first padded practice on Tuesday, and when it was finished, offensive line coach Frank Pollock asked my broadcast partner Dave Lapham and Hall of Famer Anthony Munoz to address his group. He told them that Lapp and Anthony were part of one of the best offensive lines in franchise history and a key reason why the Bengals got to the Super Bowl. He then said, that's the standard we are trying to reach. When Anthony spoke to the current players, you could sense the respect and reverence that they have for the greatest Bengal of all time. I spoke to Lapp about that and the first few days of training camp. Anthony, obviously, uh, in the Hall of Fame and, I mean, (laughs) perennial pro bowler, 12 pro bowls in 13 years or some such thing like that that was crazy. Um, You know, obviously, I'm listening to him in in awe (laughs) of what he's got to say, and, and he's just... You know, he's just such a special uh, guy, special friend, special husband, special father, special grandfather. He's just, he's he's solid gold in every every way you can be. And it's funny, when we were talking about some of the things, training camp and repetition of techniques and all that, it just, it just takes you right back there. It's, it's, it's truly amazing how uh, when you go through something like that, I'm sure guys in the military, even more so, or guys, you know, on a police force or fire department, whatever, where you have to be codependent with guys, you know, next to you from a from a physical standpoint and all the things that go along with it. I there's there's something to that. There's something to that bond. And I remember Tiger Johnson telling me uh, after I made the team as a rookie, he said, "Congratulations, young man. Do this as long as you can because he goes, you're going to make relationships here that you'll never be able to duplicate in any other walk of life." And he was exactly right. Anthony began his address to the offensive line by saying, be coachable, whether in your first year or 11th year, pay attention to the coach and try to get better every day. Yeah, I mean, Anthony, that, that's that's a good example of his humbleness, you know, because he's playing at the highest level possible. But if somebody had a suggestion or a recommendation, it, it had merit to him. You know, he wouldn't necessarily do it all, 
but he'd experiment, try it, you know, always looking to improve his game, never thinking he had arrived. Even as great as he was for as long a period of time as he was, never felt like he'd arrived. And that's, I think, a key to his greatness. I think it's a key to anybody's greatness if they're at the top of their profession, whatever it may be. You know, never settle, never say, you know, I've done it, I'm here, because that's the end of the journey. You know, Anthony never wanted the journey to end. So we're basically a week into practice. They've had six sessions. Today was the first one in full pads. By and large, the defense has been ahead of the offense. Why do you think that's the case? Well, I think defense is a reactionary thing, and offense is more of a you know a timing and a coordination of a, of a multiple of things. But honestly, I, I just think the defense is is, uh, is executing their fulfilling their assignments extremely well. You know, I mean, I think they're playing with a lot of enthusiasm. Uh, when Pratt had his interception yesterday, it was like they won a playoff game. The guys reacted, and everybody exploded off the sideline. That's good to see. I mean, it was. You know, still an unpadded practice, and uh, they're they're taking it you know that seriously. So, um, yeah, I I think defensively, they I th- I think they have a, a solid understanding of what Lou Anaruma wants and how he wants it done. He said that uh, during OTAs, he you know really was aggressive with his installation, and the retention of that has been pretty good. They're doing quite a few things, and they're doing them pretty well. So, I think um, yeah, right now, the defense I'd say. They're stacking good practices together. I, you know, three or four in a row have been really, really high level um, defending between the twenties, red zone, low red zone inside the ten yard line, first and goal stuff. I mean, they're they're plastering people. They're suffocating. They're they're doing a good job. You know, I, it, it, for Joe, it's like when he's uh, when he can has time to set his feet and scope the field. There's coverage, and then it's times there are open players, but there's no time to set his feet. So it's like pressure and coverage are complementing each other the defense is on a nice little roll right now for sure Joe's moving around fine scrambling left and right rolling out whatever the the pass play calls for seems to have moments where he's throwing the ball extremely well but in the 11 on 11 sessions he just is a tick off and I think I think it's because uh, like we talked about how well the defense is playing and you know he's human and I think he's pressing a little bit, and he wants to do well. He wants to show his teammates the need is not an issue. I'm back. I'm here. I'm 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 doing everything, and I'm doing everything well. And I think everybody watching practice has such a, an expectation. Every throw is going to be a beautiful 50-yard touchdown pass. And um, so, I'm not saying there's pressure. If there is, if he's feeling any pressure, it's self-imposed, obviously. But I think he just he wants to do well, and and he's competitor. And I think he's frustrated, and, and sometimes when that occurs, you know, you just start to press a little bit, and sometimes that's the worst thing you can do. If all eyes are on Burrow, they then go to Jamar Chase next. They always are checking out the first-round draft pick in any season. And similarly, he's had moments where he's looked great, but he hasn't been dominant yet. And uh, I suppose I find myself wondering a little bit about the fact that he missed all of last year and maybe it's just going to take a little while to, to get back up to speed. Yeah, I think, you know, you can you can make a case and a legitimate case that, you know, opting out uh, is is a factor. Um, but I watched Tupo and, of course, that's interior line play as opposed to skill position at wide receiver. And he seems to be, you know, holding the holding the fort pretty well inside as a as an interior defensive lineman. But, yeah, I think I think I think they're going to be fine. I mean, this is still very very early in training camp when when we look at team reps 
there's probably two sets of 15 or 16 during the course of a practice. So, you know, a couple of practices is barely over 60 reps. Um, but is it something you ignore? No. Do you feel like you need to make adjustments and improve and get better? Hell yes. There's no question about it. And I think defensively they're riding a, they're riding a nice little, little high right now. I'm sure they're talking about it in the locker room and, uh, and everything that goes along with it. But, you know, the, the, the practices they had up until today, Dan, I just, I just uh, look at that as uh, football conditioning, you know, and uh, it's, it's good football conditioning. But now putting pads on for the first time, I remember when every training camp I did this, this was the last day my body was going to feel good until the season was over. And hopefully that's February for this football team after the Super Bowl. Uh, but, yeah, the, tomorrow morning when they wake up, they'll be a little sore. It's a good sore. You're back to playing football, but your body is adjusting, you know, and it'll, it'll have to be adjusted now for the rest of the uh, season. With the full pads on, they did their first pass rush drills where an individual offensive lineman is isolated one-on-one against an individual pass rusher. A little bit unfair for the offensive lineman because the defensive guy has great latitude to go left and right, which you wouldn't have with a lot of traffic around. But I thought, by and large, the starting offensive lineman or the guys that are expected to play a lot held up pretty well. I, I agree with you, Dan. You know, I think, you know, people are like, oh, geez, he, he got pushed back five yards. And that drill, it's, it's almost impossible to wire your guy at the line of scrimmage and he doesn't move a muscle and move an inch. That's just not going to happen. They're going to take an edge on you. Every once in a while, they're going to try to bull rush. But, you know, like you said, Interstate 71 and 75 are both open. you got two lanes, and they can utilize both of those lanes. And, uh, you know, then you get into pass protection with you know, the guard and tackle, center guard and tackle, and the twists and stunts and all that. That's a different animal. That's a totally different uh, scenario. They didn't do any of that kind of stuff today, but they'll get to that. Um, but, yeah, I thought I agree with you. I, I thought that, you know, the, the, the five guys that Frank has been working with probably the most. Uh, and I thought really at tackle they held up pretty well. Every once in a while there was a problem at the, at the interior position where a guy get beaten quickly, pretty quickly, and got off balance, you know, either, you know, you know leaned his shoulders or, or uh, you know, get his body out of total balance or whatever the case may be. So um, there's there's always work to be done, but... For a very first day of pass rush, it was yin and yang. Uh, there were some wins, there were some losses, just like you'd expect. The kicking battle has been uh, closely watched at the end of practice. Uh, they did not attempt field goals at the end of practice on Tuesday. But uh, unless he has a horrible preseason, I think Evan McPherson is just about a lock to be this team's kicker on opening day. Dan, you, you've covered baseball for a long time. You know how the special hitters the ball sounds different coming off their bat when the ball comes off this guy's foot it has a different sound you know he just absolutely cranks the thing I mean, it, the thud is just even more pronounced it's it's unbelievable how hard he strikes the ball and and how it just jumps like the ball jumps off of a bat like the ball jumps off of this guy's foot and uh, he is he is explosive i don't know if it's uh it's overall strength biomechanics, the leverage of it, whatever he's got going on, it's going on very, very well and very, very powerful. There's no question about it. This team lost Will Jackson as a free agent. I have no idea how he's doing in camp for Washington, but they basically signed two guys for the same price, Chidabe Awuje and Mike Hilton. Boy, they both looked good this camp. Couldn't agree more, Dan. I mean, you go twofer, it's, it's, it's hard to beat, particularly when the twofer, two for one, is playing like they are. And, uh, and, and 
they're basically uh, Cheeto is is doing what Will Jackson did, maybe as well or maybe even better at this. Now it's early, you know, first day of pads and all that. And then you get the best uh, pressure guy at slot corner in the National Football League, and and he he's got uh, he's got some juice to him. There's no question. I mean, he, he's a guy that players are gravitating toward because he came from a great defensive football team and a team that has had overall success for many, many years, and that gives him some credibility. How does Riley Reef look? He looks, he looks good. Um, you know, he's, he's battling a little bit of an ankle injury now. He twisted his ankle on the interception that uh, Pratt had against Joe Burrow. Nothing serious. You know, I, he's just a little bit of a hitch in his get-along. I, I think he's going to be back sooner rather than later. Um, but, yeah, he's a, he's a 10-year veteran that gets it gets it in every possible way you can get it on and off the field and he's going to be a stabilizing influence on and off the field for this offensive line and this football team I think all season long. Joe Mixon looks frisky like he can't wait for his first regular season carry. That's a great great word great description yeah it's like uh, the first time you let the puppy out in the backyard you know it's yeah he's 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 ready to he's ready to roll and uh, I, I would not I'm not sure. I, I might wrap him in saran wrap and just make sure that he's there on the 12th for opening day against the Minnesota Vikings because he's in great physical shape. He understands this running game. You know, he's getting plenty of reps. He'll, he'll get every rep that he needs. And, uh, you know, when they do thump drill in the team uh, process, he's getting what he needs. Just don't bring him to the ground and don't let anybody in the preseason bring him to the ground. I, you know, maybe... Maybe he may, as and again, I say this as a as a former player. But you want to go through and check all the boxes. Well, maybe he wants to have a box checked where he has a couple of three carries to get hit, get back up, and make sure that everything's good. Last thing, hasn't it been nice at training camp to be able to get up close and personal, and see the various drills from a few feet away, as opposed to last year where we had to stand on the very periphery? Yeah, Dan, that's that's a great a great point, and uh, you know. You can tell a lot by looking into a guy's eyes, you know. And the thing you talked about at the end of practice with Anthony and I, when I looked in, at those guys and when Anthony was talking and I looked at him and looked at them, man, you talk about laser focus and just, just you know, absorbing and living on every single word. That, that kind of stuff is powerful. You know, you see, you can tell if a message is being delivered. A coach can tell easier than Zoom, you know, when you're, you're in, a, in a meeting room with guys and, uh, everything that goes along with it. Plus, you know, just building relationships with teammates. Face-to-face. you you got to be able to do that. you got to be able to shake that guy's hand, look in his eyes, and see what he's all about. Appreciate this. Thank you. You're the best, sir. The Bengals Booth Podcast is presented by Bud Light Seltzer. It's light and refreshing with a hint of fruit flavor. The Football Outsiders Almanac went on sale a few weeks ago, and I purchased a copy the first day it was available. I love it. There's a chapter on all 32 teams featuring great statistical analysis, but more importantly, very entertaining writing. One of the writers is Robert Weintraub, and the name might sound familiar since he also writes about the Bengals for Cincinnati Magazine. Robert, before we get to this year's Football Outsiders Almanac, let's start with your thoughts on the team, because you don't hide the fact that you are a Bengals fan at heart. What gives you hope? What gives you concern? Well, yes, I am a Bengals fan, both at heart and deep in my soul, Dan. Thank you. <laughs> and, uh, you know, obviously my concerns are uh, several fold, one being just kind of the last five years of futility and the fact that, you know, there's not necessarily 
been a massive change except the quarterback. And that leads to my next particular concern, which is that, you know, we're, we're all been kind of banking on the fact that Joe Burrow is fully healthy again. He seems like he's okay. He's running around in training camp like he's, you know, back to 100%. But we'll never really know until he gets out there, faces a real pass rush, tries to avoid, you know, a 300-pound man with evil intentions, <laughs> trying to plant him back into the turf, or stepping up into the pocket with guys rolling around at his feet, that kind of thing. And, you know, I, I have every hope and I optimism that he'll be at least right back to normal. But there's always going to be, in the back of his mind, and certainly in the back of all of our minds, uh, you know, the worry that it's going to take a while and he won't quite be the special athlete slash escape artist slash Houdini man that we saw in the first half of last season before the unfortunate injury. And you always have to, you know, be considering that in the back of our minds that it could happen again. This could happen again. So that's really the main thing. Um, otherwise, I'm fairly optimistic, certainly about the offense. I think the addition of Jamar Chase is certainly going to bring an explosive element that's been missing the last couple of years. Um, and, you know, in terms of the offensive line, while I think you and I were both Team Sewell, um, you know, the offensive line is not going to be quite the you know, drawback, the anchor, maybe, that it has been in recent years. It can be upgraded still, I believe, uh, it, and they can improve certainly with Frank Pollock uh, there to shepherd the guys to shape. I have great optimism about his capabilities. So it's, you know, a kind of a guarded optimism, but it's it's also you know, a realistic uh, realism that's tempered by the fact that I've been optimistic in this way the last few years as well, hasn't necessarily worked out. So <laughs> before they, uh, before I really go head over hog in terms of my optimism and my deep in my soul Bengal fandom, they have to prove it to me a little bit before I really uh, jump right back in with both feet, let's say. Fair enough. I think any Bengals fan can understand that. And uh, more on Chase versus Sewell to come. Uh, yeah. But you wrote the Bengals chapter in last year's Almanac. Mike Tanya wrote it this year, and, and he didn't pull any punches. Uh, <laughs> before we get to specifics about that chapter, how do those assignments work? Do you like to switch it up from year to year? Yeah, we, uh, you know, bounce around. I usually stick with the AFC North just because of my familiarity to it. Um, and you know, it's always good. I, it's generally speaking, a two out of every three year kind of deal with the Bengals or, you know, has been, uh, every other year in the last couple of years for me, just to give somebody else a chance, uh, to, you know, observe the team. I thought in this case, as you mentioned, Mike Tanier wrote it this year and it's good from the aspect of letting Bengal fans kind of know how the outside world sort of sees them, you know, how a neutral observer sees them. Um, and as you say, he didn't pull any punches. So uh, I did the Cleveland Browns, uh, one of my teams this year. And in Cleveland, there's nothing but unbridled optimism there. And, you know, something I've done in the past and did again this year was use the figures and the stats to throw a little cold water on those optimistic dreams. So it works both ways. You know, I, I don't know that I'm overly you know, optimistic or, or view the Bengals through rose-colored glasses when I write about them for football outsiders. But perhaps somebody else coming in from a different perspective will, and, and doesn't necessarily have the same history with the team that I have, will look at some of their moves in a different perspective 
and see them in this case much more negatively and people will probably accuse me of doing the same for cleveland and pittsburgh as well who i uh wrote about this year so it's a good opportunity for everybody to switch around and, and sort of take you know other perspectives on teams that uh you don't get locked down and, and caught in the minutia every single year writing about the same team we are talking to Robert Weintraub, who writes about the NFL for Football Outsiders. He writes about the Bengals for Cincinnati Magazine, and he is also the author of several books, including The Divine Miss Marble, which comes out in paperback next week. Robert, most analytic or analytical websites, including Pro Football Focus, seem to think the Bengals got it right by choosing Jamar Chase instead of Panay Sewell. Uh, as you mentioned earlier, we were both Team Sewell prior to the draft. The Football Outsiders Almanac was very critical of that move. In a nutshell, why? Well, I think from that perspective, it was, and from mine too, it's less about the capabilities of the two players. I certainly believe that Jamar Chase will be very good. I don't think anybody who's seen him play at LSU or, you know, uh, figure how him and Joe Burrow are going to reconnect their unique chemistry in Cincinnati, have any doubt that he's going to be a, a stud in the NFL. It's more about like a team building concept, especially for me. You know, what do you want to be as a team? The Bengals have historically had good wide receivers, high flying offenses. And, you know, where's it gotten them? <laughs> they've had good offensive lines in the past too. And when they've been really successful, it's when they could bully other teams and, and be, an offensive line centric team that unlocked all the skill position guys. And, you know, as we saw in years past over the last few years, the skill position guys tend to get injured. Um, you know, your skill players come and go, they wax and wane. If you have an offensive line that is a healthy, obviously, but be talented and works together as a cohesive unit and a strength of your team rather than, you know, either a, a drawback or just kind of a middling part of your team. If it's a real strength of your team, that can that can unlock your offense, even if your skill guys are not so great or injured or, you know, all the things that happen during a season that you don't expect. And it's also just sort of a, a mindset of the team, a sort of, you know, a lodestone, if you will, where you look at them and say, oh, yeah, that's a team that's going to come in here and pound us with their offensive line and, whether or not we know it's coming, we're not going to be able to stop it. I think you saw it in Cleveland last year. They made the sort of internal decision to become an offensive line-centric team. They signed a guy who turned out to be an all-pro tackle. They drafted another in the first round. And they basically said, we're going to run the ball, try and stop us. And most teams couldn't. And they were very effective, as we saw. So, you know, I kind of was jealous of that, <laughs> I guess you'd say. <laughs> and I've always thought that, that's kind of the way at Football Outsiders, we've always had the precept that you build from the inside out, from the trenches, and then out to the perimeter. And I think, generally speaking, football history has proven us correct. There have been exceptions, of course. And Cincinnati has had good teams with, you know, middling offensive lines, and they've had great teams with great offensive lines. I sort of wanted to get back to that, and I thought drafting Sewell was, regardless of him as a player personally, you know, he's... He's obviously a great prospect, but there are others. But the idea was to focus with all intentions on the offensive line. And when Mike wrote what he wrote in the uh, chapter this year, it was less about Sewell himself than it was sort of the five-year holistic look at the team and thinking, you know, while they have tried and have put some resources into the line, they could have done much more. And when you have an asset like Joe Burrow, 
everything has to revolve around protecting him. So I think that's where he was coming from. That's certainly where I'm coming from. I think it's where you were coming from. And all of us Team Sewell types are coming from. But, you know, we have Jamar Chase now, and there's certainly nothing wrong with him. And I I think uh, we can all get behind the fact that throwing the ball and having as many weapons as possible in the modern NFL is, is a good plan of attack as well. I just prefer to be more of a physical brand, call me a throwback, a Neanderthal, old school, whatever you want to be. I like my football to be about burying the guy in front of me, not necessarily running around him. I kind of like Neanderthal. I think I'm going to refer to you as a Neanderthal. I will say this about the, the Sewell versus Chase debate. Prior to the draft, very much Team Sewell. But after the first round, when I looked at the remaining wide receivers left versus the remaining offensive linemen left, I do think that the package of Chase plus Carmen might be better for the Bengals than any package of Sewell plus the remaining wide receivers out there. I mean, that's a fair assessment, and I certainly go that way myself. I guess what I would say is if you have a quarterback the level of Joe Burrow, he can make any wide receiver that you were going to take in the second round look like a guy who maybe we don't know is going to be as good as, say, Jamar Chase or whoever, whomever they could possibly have gotten. The idea is that when you have a guy that good, you know, he's going to do his magic. What you have to do to benefit him is, you know, keep him from the stuff that he has no control over. He has the control over getting the ball out to his receivers. And yes, Jamar Chase is going to help him in that respect. In that respect. But the thing he has no control over is getting walloped from the blind side or guys falling around his knees, as we saw. And uh, to me, that was the most important place to go uh, in terms of building the team. But, you know, I don't disagree, and I I certainly don't believe that Chase was a a bad pick. It's more about a a team concept, as we said before. How do you build your team? What's your overall strategy? Where do you want your, your main resources to go? And I think in this case, I would have gone offensive line. We're talking to Robert Weintraub. You can follow him on Twitter at Rob Wein, W-E-I-N. This year's Almanac is nearly 500 pages long. In addition to some very entertaining writing about all 32 teams, there's a ton of statistical data. Is there anything along those lines that you found especially revealing where the Bengals are concerned? There were a few things. Um, I think I'd probably start with the defense, which we don't really talk about as much leading up to this uh, in this offseason because everything was so much about uh, Sewell versus Chase and how the offense should be built. You know, the defense obviously wasn't good and hasn't been good in a while. But in breaking the numbers down, we found that in the first quarter of games last year, they were actually a top five defense by our efficiency numbers, which are called BVOA. I won't get into the higher math, but basically it's all about a play per play kind of efficiency and how good are you from preventing the other team from getting first downs and, and getting moving the sticks and keeping the ball. Uh, and in the first quarter, the Bengals were excellent. Problem was, in the second through the fourth quarters, they were 31st in the league. Uh, now, why does that happen? I mean, I think there's a combination of things. Is it the adjustments that were either made or not made by Lou Anarumo and then the coaching staff? Is it a stamina thing? I personally come down on, on depth. Uh, I think we know that the Bengals were reduced to playing a lot of guys who barely knew where the bathrooms were in Paul Brown Stadium, much less, you know, the complexities of a, of a stunt or a cloud coverage or anything <laughs> like that. So, you know, they, when you get 
down to using guys like that, it's obviously going to be difficult. I think their approach this offseason was to get not so much the top one through five guys sorted on your defense, but 10 through 16. So when the inevitable injuries come around, they'd be in better shape than they were last year. They were running out guys who really had no business on an, uh, on an NFL field last year. And, you know, with the addition of guys like, you know, smaller level guys, Ricardo Allen, Eli Apple, guys like that, who aren't, you know, big names and aren't hopefully going to make a huge impact. But when the time comes and the, you know, guys in front of them get injured or they have to play late in games because other guys are tired or just because of schematics, uh, you have a guy who's, a, who's an NFL vet who knows what he's doing out there. So I thought the stats reveal sort of a, an interesting team building, building concept in that sense on the defensive side, which I wasn't really uh, aware of during the season necessarily. Robert, as you mentioned, you wrote the Cleveland and Pittsburgh chapters this year in the Almanac, and the Browns chapter definitely surprised me because the data projects Cleveland to win one more game than Cincinnati and to finish behind Baltimore and Pittsburgh. What do those numbers say about the Browns? Well, a lot of things. First of all, you have to remember that the way we do projections for a season is sort of a range, right? It's not saying... They're definitely the Browns are definitely going to finish ten and seven or nine and eight and boy that's weird just still doing that with the seventeenth <laughs> game I guess we'll all get used to it but uh, you know basically what happens is we play the season out one million times uh, by a, some supercomputer in a, in a lab somewhere uh, and then you know using our numbers we we then assign ranges of probabilities for the overall results of these seasons and basically. You know, we break it down by, you know, zero to five wins being a terrible team, mediocre six to eight, nine to 11 being a playoff contender, and then 12 or more being a Super Bowl contender. And yeah, the Browns, the preponderance, like 72%, were in the six to 11 win range. Now, obviously, 11 wins is a lot different than six. So you're talking about, you know, a decently wide variety there. But I think most people imagine the Browns are going to be a Super Bowl contender and, and you know, 12 or more wins, and, and the numbers just aren't there. A lot of the reasons why, first of all, last year was sort of a hollow 11-5 and five season for them. They didn't even score more points than they gave up during the year. Uh, they were one of the worst teams by our numbers ever to finish 11-5. and five. Um, hmm. They had unusually healthy offensive line. You know, I think they had 74 out of 80 potential started games started by their five guys up front which is unusual and, and usually bounces back they had a great number of turnovers even though their defensive numbers were not good they were a bottom 10 defense but they were a top 10 defense enforcing turnovers per drive and that's also another uh, stat that usually rebounds the other way from year to year and you look at their team i mean they know they knew in cleveland that their defense was shoddy last year and then brought in a whole raft of new guys they could have as many as nine new starters uh, on their defensive side. And certainly you would imagine <laughs> that'll take a while to work out, get some cohesion going on defense there. So, and, you know, it's not definite that they're even that much of a talent upgrade. It seems like they are, but we'll see. So, I mean, there's guarded optimism. There's reasons for them to be optimistic based on, like we, uh, we were talking earlier, you know, their basic principle last year in offense was we're going to run it down your throat and nobody could stop them. I don't know if that's going to change all that much. Baker Mayfield certainly 
responded well to Kevin Stefanski's coaching and the way that they made him more comfortable in the pocket and got him outside the pocket where he's much more of a threat than he is really inside the pocket given his size and uh, and accuracy concerns. So, you know, there's certainly reason for them to believe that they'll be in the mix. Uh, just maybe don't buy those Super Bowl tickets just yet. <laughs> Well, on the flip side, while the rest of the football world seems to think the Steelers are steeply declining, football outsiders doesn't necessarily see that. Make the case for Pittsburgh still being good. First of all, their defense is still really good, and we project them to be the number one defense again this season. I think they're on the 73-game sack streak, something like that. Uh, they get Devin Bush back. You know, they're still going to be <laughs> up in enemy quarterbacks' grills, including Joe Burrow, and they better prepare for that. I mean, you know, there's also the case just from a Bengal fan perspective, you know, wish casting Pittsburgh to be bad usually doesn't turn out very well for all of us. You know, <laughs> we wind up getting our faces planted in the turf by their black and gold uh, cleats. So let's. I, I just that part of it is like I don't want to come out and be thinking, oh, the Steelers are going to stink this year because that that hardly ever turns out uh, well for Cincinnati. But they have you know some elements to their team that are still going to work besides the defense. Um, you know, the question is their depth. I think you'd see say it's safe to say their offensive line is as questionable, if not more so, than Cincinnati's. Uh, and you know, their running game was awful last year. They did draft Najee Harris, who looks to be. Uh, certainly an excellent addition to their backfield, but you know, running backs without an offensive line that's that's you know doing the job up front are, are questionable picks in the first round. So I can understand the the reticence around the nation to think uh, that Pittsburgh is going to be the same old Steelers. We don't necessarily think that they're going to be the same old Steelers either. We kind of put them in the same range as the Browns. They could win six, seven, eight games, or they could easily sneak a couple others, win nine or ten get into the playoffs and then you know it's ride or die with Ben Roethlisberger is Ben Roethlisberger the same Ben Roethlisberger that's been plaguing us for these last couple of decades in Cincinnati or is he the guy that we saw at the end of last year fall off a cliff you know that's not really a question that the numbers can answer per se we forecast him to be somewhere in between that's usually good enough, at least with the Steelers, the rest of the pieces that they have, barring any huge injuries uh, to key guys like T.J. Watt, let's say, or, or Minka Fitzpatrick. Um, you know, that should be enough to still get them in the playoff mix right there with the Browns and the Ravens, and hopefully the Bengals. It should be a good four-team race. Uh, you know, we don't have the Bengals necessarily being a bad team in terms of our projections. It's just they have a much more wider range and many more possibilities of falling away than the other three teams because of their history. But, you know, I think we all think just based on the personnel that they should have a fighting chance. It's, it'll come down to the close games like it always does. And in the last couple of years, the Bengals have shown they can't win those. That's been the problem, whereas Pittsburgh has shown that they can. I think right there, that's the main difference in our projections. And, you know, it has to be proven on the field before our algorithms will really reflect that you know we don't we don't try we don't truck in in what we think will happen we truck in what we've seen before so that's really the main reason pittsburgh ranks higher than both the browns and the Bengals, at least at this point so you give the Bengals a 35 percent chance of winning nine or more games and going to the playoffs what has to go right for that to happen well let's start up front obviously you know 
that goes without saying Joe has to play the entire season. That's that goes without saying. Um, I think the other Joe, Joe Mixon, is in a similar boat. You know, without Gio Bernard backing him up, all of a sudden the Bengals look a bit thin in the backfield. And this is a guy, Joe Mixon, who only played six games last season and is coming off a foot injury. Not necessarily something you want to be dealing with as a running back based on your agility and your acceleration, that kind of thing. Uh, We all think he'll be perfectly fine, but again, we don't know that. So their health and overall health, which has been an elusive concept in Cincinnati for some time, that's obviously uh, key number one. Nutrition in the NFL is the most important factor really year after year. Uh, You saw it just with Tampa Bay last year. it, it, I think what we also need to see is, uh, as I mentioned before, an improvement in those defensive numbers and specifically situational numbers. Um, and I think they have to, and they almost certainly have nowhere to go but up since they finished last in the league in red zone offense last year. Those situational plays down deep, that's really where they you know, really got injured last year, um, literally and figuratively when Burrow went down, their red zone efficiency fell off a, a cliff. Um, and you know, it, it, so much of football, we tend to think of it as, oh, you know, this team stinks because they only won five games or six games or whatever it is. But think about how many games in the last couple of years have come down to a play, two plays, one drive, you know, it's really improving in those key situations. And I think that's what they we're thinking again, as I mentioned before, by improving the depth and, and having guys on the field in key situations that know what they're doing and aren't going to give up a key first down or you know, not get open in a key situation on the offensive end, not miss a big block in this key situation. That's really what it comes down to for them. Um, unfortunately, they haven't proven that they can do that over the last couple of years. And I, I don't know where Zach Taylor can say to himself, all right, we have really have to stress late game key game situations we can practice as much as we want but you kind of have to win them to prove that you can do it before you can get anywhere as a team and you know it's just going to have to be done on the field and you know for that 35 percent number to to be realized they're going to have to show that they can they can do it and do it consistently final question for robert weintraub who writes about the nfl for football outsiders and the Bengals for cincinnati magazine you're working on a profile I'm my broadcast partner, Dave Lapham. What inspired you to write about Lap? Obviously, I'm in favor. And uh, when can we look forward to seeing that? Well, that'll be out relatively soon. Next month's issue of Cincinnati Magazine, indeed. Uh, the September issue, I guess, coinciding with the beginning of the NFL. Uh, yeah, Dave, well, you know, as you well know, he's a great guy and, and uh, excellent at his craft and somebody who's, you know, kind of a key uh, figure in Cincinnati and, and in Cincinnati sports. But I, I just felt he was sort of unknown, certainly his background. Everybody knows he plays for the Bengals and he's been associated with the team for so long. Sort of a Joe Noxhall figure in stripes, if you will. Hmm. But I know I didn't know very much about his background or and what made him tick, his motivations, etc. Um, and I figured I was as big a fan as anybody else out there. And if I didn't know much about him, there were probably a lot of people out there who felt likewise. So he just seemed like a natural uh, subject for somebody who's been kind of hiding in plain sight all these years. So I got a chance to hang out with him and talk to him, and he proved to be, you know, not just as nice a guy as we all know he would be, but pretty uh, 
pretty deep and, and pretty feeling and, and had some interesting things to say about a variety of subjects. So hopefully you'll, uh, everybody out there will check it out and, and read about a guy who, you know, we all kind of take for granted over these many years, but has obviously been a, a crucial uh, part of the franchise and the city of Cincinnati for so long. I can't wait. I'm sure it'll be a great read. And uh, speaking of that, I mentioned earlier that the book you wrote last year, The Divine Miss Marble, is about to come out in paperback. For those who have never heard of Alice Marble, tell us a little bit about her. How is that possible, Dan? No one's heard of her? <laughs> the truth is I had never heard of her until I kind of stumbled across her name one day, so I don't blame anyone. Uh, she was the foremost female tennis player in the world uh, in the years right before World War II, uh, the you know, late mid to late 1930s, had her career and, and dominance in the sport basically ended by the war uh, and then wound up being recruited to be an espionage agent for the U.S. and for the U.S. military during the war. And from there, many, many interesting and questionable things proceeded. You have to read the book to really get into why, but it, suffice to say, I became a detective as part of this story. I found out reams and reams of information about a fascinating woman who went and had influence far beyond the tennis court uh, in her life and really overcame immense obstacles to uh, to achieve what she did. So she's really a fascinating figure, and uh, I was really lucky to be able to write about her. So hopefully people will uh, will take the opportunity to read about her. I, I know it's it's worthwhile. Robert, thanks so much for the time. Always appreciate it. Anytime, Dan. Thank you. Appreciate it. That's going to do it for this episode of the Bengals Booth Podcast, brought to you by Bud Light Seltzer. Refresh the game. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe, and if you have a minute, give it a rating or share a comment. That helps more Bengals fans find this podcast. I'm Dan Horde, and thank you for listening to the Bengals Booth Podcast.